Cities produce more than 60% of global greenhouse gas emissions. Big cities get a lot of attention, but most household emissions in the U.S. actually come from communities outside urban cores, making them critical players in climate mitigation and climate justice. City Climate Corner explores how these small and mid-sized cities are tackling climate change and moving toward an equitable and sustainable future. I'm Abby Finnis. And I'm Larry Kraft. We're co-hosts for City Climate Corner. Hey, Abby. Hey, Larry. So we have a new Patreon supporter. Hey. Thank you, Andy Willette. We are eternally grateful for your support. And others, if you want to support us, go to the support us link on our website. Yeah. Thank you, Andy. And it's Libra season, which is the best of all seasons. Why is it the best of all seasons? Um. Well... I'm a Libra, and all the best people are Libras. (laughs) Might you have a birthday? I do have a birthday coming up. I'll be 27 again, you know, (laughs) (laughs) a little bit more than that. But we also have a good friend and podcast listener whose birthday is in Libra season, and we wanted to send a happy birthday to Janet Brown. Happy birthday, Janet. We hope that you're having an amazing birthday and birthday season and Libra season and all of that. Well, this week we are doing another one of our kind of series of solar episodes, right, Abby? Yeah, so we have had a number of solar episodes where we spoke with IREC about the Soul Smart program, Winnesheek Energy District about setting up an energy district that uh, addresses both solar and, and energy efficiency and conservation, and spoke with Brian Ross about how you can utilize zoning as a tool to enable solar in your community in a way that you want it. And today we're speaking with Anya Schoolman of Solar United Neighbors, where they put together co-ops of group purchasing of solar within neighborhoods. And so it's kind of a cool model to bring down the costs of solar in some instances or improve the conditions of contracts and others. Yeah, and they have a presence, a direct presence in 10 or 11 states, as well as the the District of Columbia and Puerto Rico. And one of the places they have a presence is in Minnesota. And in fact, you and I were involved with them several years ago in organizing a co-op in St. Louis Park. Yeah, it was a pretty cool project where we mapped the solar potential of a couple of different neighborhoods in St. Louis Park and then um, worked with some high school students to go out and do some outreach with folks to say, hey, did you know you have a good solar resource on your roof? And I think we got close to two dozen households to sign up and get solar on their roof. It's a pretty cool effort. Yeah, it was good. And I love this model because one of the reasons, main reasons people get solar is because their neighbors got it. Right. What a great way to learn about it together and actually have a group that knows what they're doing to both educate you and to make sure you get a good deal and you you get through the project management side of it as well. It's a really good opportunity for cities to be involved and figure out, you know, how they, they want to do the programming, the outreach. It's an awesome opportunity, you know, now that the tax credit has been restored for the next 10 years for solar that, you know, there's some certainty there and you can bundle that with other incentives and work with under-resourced communities to make sure that it's not just going to affluent neighborhoods and spread solar throughout your community. Right. What's the level of that tax credit that's going to be going forward? It was 26%. It had dropped and now it's back up to 30% for the next 10 years. That's great. Time to get solar. That's right. 
And I'm excited to talk to these folks because they have a great founding story, but we'll leave that for the interview. Let's do it. Let's do it. Today, we are speaking with Anya Schoolman, Executive Director of Solar United Neighbors. Welcome, Anya. Why don't you start by introducing yourself and telling us about your role at Solar United Neighbors? Hi, it's great to be with you today. Like you said, my name is Anya. I'm the executive director and founder of Solar United Neighbors, and we're a national organization that helps people go solar, join together, and fight for their energy rights. I know that Solar United Neighbors has this really cool origin story that resonates a lot with me, but maybe can you share with us how the organization got started? Sure. We started in 2007 when my son, Walter, who was 12 at the time, and his best friend, Diego, had gone to see the movie Inconvenient Truth. Then they came back from the movie and they were like, we got to do something, mom. They grew up in Washington, D.C., so they were cynical from birth. And they were like, the government's never going to solve this. We have to solve it ourselves. Let's go solar, they said. And so I was like, okay, let's try. It sounds really cool. And um, we tried, and it was overwhelmingly complicated, expensive, and confusing. At that time in 2007, solar was very expensive. It was $8 a watt. And right now, in most of the places where Solar United Neighbors is working, we're at about $2 a watt. And not only that, there was no way to to like even sign up in D.C. There was no rules supporting it. There was no interconnection. No installers worked in D.C. None of them wanted to come into the city. The ones that worked were out in the suburbs. And so we came up with this idea of what if we organized the whole neighborhood? Our neighborhood is called Mount Pleasant. And if we got enough people together, we could help each other understand the technology and the process, uh, work together and bring down the cost. We launched, without really thinking about it, the Mount Pleasant Solar Cooperative. And the kids made these flyers that said, would you go solar if it costs the same or less than what you're paying for your electric bill? And they passed these flyers around. And I I always tell people that if there hadn't been two 12-year-old boys in charge of this project, I would have quit after the third flight of steps. Because our houses are row houses with two flights of steps to every front door. And so we got about halfway down the block and I'm like, I'm tired. And they just charged ahead. And about a week later, we had 45 houses had signed up for the project. And within a couple of weeks, we had almost 90 houses. And then we started a two-year process that involved learning about the technology, meeting one another, which was really an amazing experience. The kids worked on a energy efficient light bulb project. In the meantime, we passed a bill in 2008, and then we ended up taking 45 houses solar together as a group in 2009. And by together, it's really, we call them co-ops, but they're not cooperative businesses. Where It's not community solar. We're not physically connected or economically connected. We're connected by community. So it's the process, it's the information sharing, it's the power of a group, either whether you're influencing policy or getting a good deal by getting a bulk discount. The first one was amazing and we went solar. And then we started getting requests 
literally from all over the country, can you show us how to do the same thing? And we started in D.C. And when we, once we had a co-op group in each of the political jurisdictions of D.C., we realized that we had an incredible tool for influencing policy because then each jurisdiction, each co-op could talk to their member of the council. And then we started passing bills unanimously in the council. And um, we realized that this wasn't just a tool for going solar. It was really a tool for changing the structure of the energy economy and for changing politics. And then slowly by slowly, we added states. We went from my neighborhood to all over DC, to Virginia, to Maryland, to West Virginia, to Ohio. Ohio is a really typical story. We were in Wheeling, West Virginia, and people came over the river, came over the Ohio River, and they're like, when are you coming to Ohio? We want you here. And that's pretty much how all of our states got started. And now we're offering a whole lot of national services as well. Yeah, let's talk about those national services. So you are no longer the Mount Pleasant Solar Cooperative. It's Solar United Neighbors. What are some of the program services that that the organization offers? Well, everything is in our sort of three categories. Go solar, join together, fight for your energy rights. It helps us keep it straight. And we see it as a cycle where the more times you do the cycle, the more people can participate in the clean energy economy and more people benefit. In the Go Solar category, we have a national help desk. We'll help anybody that's going solar. We'll answer their questions. We'll help them review their proposals. We do a lot of consumer education on the Go Solar side. We also run all sorts of seminars and webinars, just teaching people about Go Solar. What do you need to look for in a contract? And then we have a lot of resources like a guide. If you've already gone solar, what do you need to know? Or you've already gone solar, now you want to add batteries. What do you do? So we have a whole line of educational resources and programming and support for Go Solar. And then in the Join Together category, we do a lot of activist training, like how to lobby from your couch, how to write a letter to the editor. We have an articles club. So we have a, group, a national group of people that get together every month. They read an article about solar and then they get together and discuss it. And it's entirely led by volunteers. We do movie screenings. We have a, a scouting patch. So the scouts can do a curriculum about solar, and then they win a patch that we send them. So we have a lot of fun activities. And then we do in-person events. We just did a really wonderful, supported a big fair in Pennsylvania called the Allegheny Solar Festival. And then on the fight side, on the advocacy side, there's lots of state and local level work that we do, but you asked about national. So for national We've been fighting for equity. We've been pushing really hard for a refundable tax, federal tax credit so that even if you don't have the income to take a tax credit or if you're a church or a nonprofit, you can get the benefit of that federal incentive to go solar. And we've been pushing really hard on the USDA REAP program, which is a lot of acronym. But what it really means is uh, the Department of Agriculture has a program to provide grants for rural farms and rural businesses, which are some of the most economically distressed parts of the country. And so we've been pushing really hard to expand that program. 
we keep engaged on the national level and give people an opportunity to weigh in with their elected officials. We did a campaign on, at the FERC on public access to policy. So we try to keep track of what's going on and then translate it so regular people can follow what's going on and decide if they want to get involved. Can you tell us a little bit more about the structure of the organization? So you're in D.C. Is that the mothership of Solar United Neighbors? And how does that relate to other chapters across the country? We're definitely one organization, but we've always been really distributed. So even before COVID, we did all our meetings on Google Hangouts and, you know, we had people all over the country. So we have people on the ground in about 12 or 13 states. And in those places, we have one, two, sometimes more, three, four people on the ground. And we're in those states like Florida and Arizona and Ohio and Indiana, just to name a few. We're doing a lot of in-person work and getting into not only state level advocacy and engagement, but local, like local permitting, local interconnection, rural electric co-ops. So in the states where we have the capacity, we go in deeper, but then we have this national program that connects it all. But everybody works for one organization in Solar United Neighbors. Gotcha. You touched on the community aspect a little bit, and I love that so much of this is rooted in community. What kinds of things do you see come out of that in different areas? I imagine that everywhere is a little bit different. So how does that emerge in different places? I think one of the most interesting things is that we find that solar is really a connector among people of very different backgrounds. And one of the things that I think is different about our organization is we're not preaching to people why they should go solar. People come to us because they already have decided they're interested in solar. And so we get people from the petroleum industry and fracking industry in West Virginia who are interested in this. And we get climate activists and anti-pipeline activists. They have very different reasons, but there's this commonality of it makes sense for my community. It builds jobs and economic prosperity in my community. It's going to save me money. And then other things like climate transformation, economic development. So I think it's that connector aspect. We're very unusual in that we're really bringing together people from a very broad political spectrum and trying to get people not to focus on their differences. So much of politics today is these politics of hatred and division. And the thing that's so lovely about solar is there's so much hope and there's so much positivity. And, and it's on so many levels because you're helping yourself, but you're also helping create a job where you live. Mm-hmm. Or you're putting solar on your church and you're helping your church do more for the community. So there's these sort of multiplier connections that people really see and it's enabled us to continue, even as the country's gotten more angry and divided, to convene a really broad array of people around practical, hopeful solutions. Hey, we're taking a quick break to say if you like what you're hearing, please support us. You can do so by clicking the support us link on our website at cityclimatecorner.com, or you can go to our store and get some cool merch. There's so many benefits from solar that can bring people 
into the market who otherwise maybe wouldn't have been. What about the number of states? You have a dozen or so states where there are staff from Solar United Neighbors. And, you know, I've worked with cities who have worked with Sun on bulk purchases. How do they do that? How do they get involved and get engaged with cities? It's kind of an organic process. We have relationships, I think, with 33 different cities right now. And in many cases, either the mayor or somebody in the city council, or if they have a sustainable development person, they've seen our work elsewhere. And they're like, this is perfect for our community. We have now done these bulk purchases so many times and professionalized that, that we can guarantee a city that it's going to be a painless process for them. And so we do have contracts with a lot of cities to do. We call them co-ops, but they're these bulk purchases. The other thing that's happening with cities right now that's really exciting is that we're developing low-income solar pilot projects with several dozen cities. And in most cases, we started with a market rate co-op and then everybody's like, yeah, but what about the people who can't afford it? We're really working to demonstrate that this works for low-income households, how it works and how you put the financing together to make it work for people. And we're a little bit unusual in that we're a learning by doing organization. Let's try it small, see how it works, learn, and then grow from there. And so that's what we're doing with our low-income solar program, and it's really taking off. So that's another big part of our city's work right now. We had these conversations in Houston and Phoenix and some other big cities, and they're like, can we start with 100 houses? And we're like, how about if we start with 10 houses? And then we learn and identify the barriers and what are the problems and where's the money going to come from and build trust in the community. One of the things that we discovered with low-income solar especially is that often the single largest barrier is trust, not money. Because people have to know you. They have to know that it's real and it's not some ripoff scheme. And there's a lot of ripoffs out there and people are wise to be wary. And so you have to really establish credibility. So we're often pushing and saying, we want to do 100 next year, but this year let's do 10. Hey, Anya, I want to dig in more to the the equity side of this. How do you develop trust in those situations? It's just be there, be authentic, be honest, be transparent. That's the basis of it. When we're in a new place where we haven't been before, it's really building relationships with other community-based organizations that have a longer history. We're working, for example, in a couple places with local land trust organizations that have been working for decades on developing low-income housing. They've got in-depth, multi-year, sometimes multi-decade relationships with families. So once they get comfortable with us, they can vouch for us with the community. Um, Sometimes it's with a church. Sometimes it's with a community organization. So local community organizations are the key. And then behaving with integrity and transparency and honesty and really showing real results. So it's it's a very results-oriented process. How is the program different for someone of lower income? Like, well, what are the differences between your standard and these new pilot that you're doing? There's some technology differences and then the financings. On the financing, 
like I said, every single one of our pilots is a little different. In some cases, the household is contributing some or they're taking on a loan. And in some cases, they're fully funded. But our, our general goal is that the homeowner owns the system and that it's nearly fully paid for. That's very different because in the market rate, people are either funding it themselves fully or borrowing the money themselves. And we make it really clear to people, you know, how many years to pay back and what are the economics. We really take our time with people on that. The other big differences is we raise money for roof repairs for the low-income projects because that's also a big impediment. If your roof isn't recently painted or recently up to date, you don't want to put solar on it and then have to take the solar off when the roof starts leaking. So we put in a budget for roof repairs. We put in requirements for uh, operations and maintenance contract, which we don't do in the market rate, to make sure there's no unexpected cost for the homeowner a couple of years down the line. And then the last big technological difference is uh, most solar systems now come with online monitoring systems, so you can track the production of all the panels on your roof. In the market rate, most of those depend on internet connection. For the low income, we make them uh, cell phone based. Because of the digital divide is real, your system is de- dependent on internet and the home doesn't have internet connection, you wouldn't get monitoring. But if it works on your cell phone, then you don't have that problem. So those are some of the differences. We keep adding and reviewing and looking as we do these projects. That's part of what we learn and adapt. Our podcast tends to focus at the smaller mid-sized cities. I imagine you have successes in both large and smaller cities. You know, we do it in every size. Like it could be a group of 20 people and that could be a co-op. So it's really more about the community wanting it and asking us to help than any size differentiation. What are some of the, the big home runs that you've seen? Where are some of the bigger successes? I think in Virginia and Florida, we've seen the solar market completely transform. In both cases, when we started in those states, the local energy climate activists and the installers, they were like, what are you doing here? It's hopeless. The utility controls everything. You'll never make any progress. You'll never, it'll never work. And we just sort of systematically cycle after cycle. This cycle has to go through a bunch of times to be transformative. Go solar, join together, fight for your energy rights. Each time you fight, the market gets a little better. You've done some tweak on the market to make it more affordable, more accessible. And we've really seen those two states just take off as solar states and be two of the most promising states where we've got people all over the state that are active and engaged and really impacting policy. We just had a big defensive win in Florida where the legislature, partially because solar is taking off so much, tried to end the net metering program, which is the policy that lets you get credit for your excess rooftop generation. You use energy at night and then you produce more than you use in the day. The net metering lets you just net out that difference. 
and they tried to change that. We fought it really hard and mobilized really broadly, and in the end got a, a veto from the governor to stop that bill. So that was a really big, surprising win, but we worked really, really hard for it. We've also had some amazing long shots. Like in West Virginia, we passed a bill making power purchase agreements, which are third-party ownership, which is really helpful for nonprofits and churches and places like that that want to do solar, but they can't take the tax credit. So we legalized in a state that's generally pretty hostile to renewable energy after multiple cycles and educating people and explaining what it was we legalized power purchase agreements. We just passed a homeowner rights bills in Indiana and Ohio this year in, a, in an environment where people are saying you can't get anything done on clean energy in those states. And while I admit it's not a giant win for clean energy writ large, it was actually a giant win for rooftop solar in those states because HOAs are often some of the biggest barriers to, to solar in a lot of states. Yeah. We keep having wins, and it's more about going through that cycle methodically, systematically, over and over, and building for the long term. There's a lot of pressure on nonprofits like ours to have big, giant, flashy campaigns, and lots of times they do that and they lose. Our theory of change is really systematically building and growing over 10 years to a transformative win as opposed to a short-term big win. Mm -hmm. um, and it's hard sometimes to convince funders and partners to make that longer-term investment. Mm -hmm. It's a different way of looking at it. I think it's partially because I'm kind of old. I've seen all these big campaigns flash in the pan, come and go and fail. And I'd rather take longer and get further in the long run. Yeah, I think it's an important point because I do think that we think about solar as, as a technology and something that's installed, but there are all of these different local level policies, state level policies that can really get in the way of moving forward and, and transforming the market for solar. So I think that that's a huge point that it's like, no, we, we still have to chip away at these things. We can't just have this one big goal. And there's other organizations that go after those bigger goals. And so it's a good complementary effort. When you look from when you started around 2007, eight to now and looking forward, where do you see us in the solar market transformation? Have we arrived or where else do we have to go? I think... First, we went through this period of like, does it work? Does it cost out? And now we're totally at this point where it works and it's, it's the cheapest, best electricity and the most resilient way to make power and it's best for our community. So there's this huge transformation. And, and now we're at this sort of how does it work with everything else some people call it grid of the future, whatever. And I think we're just at the next turning point. And we're, this is where we're seeing all this friction right now, where distributed solar and storage becomes the solution to our energy challenges, to resilience, to cost, to integrating renewables on the grid, because it enables an informed, engaged consumer 
the word prosumer is somebody who's producing, not consuming. So you have this national network of people that make energy. Therefore, they're actively engaged in the market. They can change when they make it, when they use it, when they send it on the grid. And so when you go in this big, hard pivot from a static grid with central baseload power, where we're just supposed to use it whenever we want and then pay no matter what it costs, to this new grid that's dynamic, that's distributed, that's more resilient, and is much more equitable and cost-effective. In that new vision, distributed solar and storage is the solution. It's the linchpin. And that's where we're headed. And I think the light bulb is starting to go on in certain states where they're starting to be like, oh, wait, these solar people are also our EV people. These are also our dynamic pricing people. They're also our people that will turn down their thermostat when we're about to have a brownout. And so seeing this energy activist, it's a, it's a huge opportunity that utilities are just on the verge of getting. Most of them aren't there yet. We're trying to start a program in Hawaii right now. We're looking for funding precisely because Hawaii's already there. Hawaii already saw that they have a massive amount of rooftop solar because energy is so expensive. People just naturally want solar to save money. But now they have to balance the grid. And there was really only two choices, like shut down the solar or turn it into an asset that served everyone. And so what they're doing is incentivizing batteries in Hawaii so that then solar can be a dynamic resource that can shave the peak cost, lower cost for everyone, whether they have solar or not. And we want to be part of that and learn from that because we think that the rest of the country will follow, that the prices are inevitable. Conventional is going to get more and more expensive. Solar is going to get cheaper and cheaper. And the Hawaii dynamic, although it's a little bit special because it's an island, so it got there first, in the end, everywhere will be like that with a different mix of reasons. Some of it is wildfires and hurricanes and things like that. So different resiliency challenges. So I think we're just on the edge of something really exciting. And we're trying to start a Puerto Rico program and a Hawaii program right now to be more in the mix of how does solar fit into this new distributed grid of the future and then bring those lessons back to the mainland? I love that, Anya. And I guess I got my first inkling of that a couple months ago. We did this episode on microgrids in California. And the combination, you're right, of solar plus batteries, you think, well, that's kind of simple. But actually, as you start thinking through the benefits it provides locally and, and the grid benefits, it's like, wow, this is, it does feel transformational. So if we have a listener listening saying, hey, I want to do this, I want to get started, how would they get started, both maybe in a state where there is people on the ground and maybe one where there isn't? We have tons of resources and help. So solarunitednaybors.org. There's videos you could watch. There's everything from a one-pager to an hour-long YouTube video. If we have programs in your state, you could go and sign up for a co-op, is what we call it, and you could join a group, and we'll take you through the process. But if we don't, use our help desk, ask questions, start your own group. 
invite us in, you know, so there's every range from you can do it yourself and we can help you to join an existing group to create a group. Last question would be, what advice do you have for cities that want to equitably increase solar in their community? You know, I I think it's a complicated question. So right now, cities spend a huge amount of money paying for electric bills. They just pay people's bills. LIHEAP program, and there's other programs. Lots of times, uh, elected officials use all their constituent services money just to pay people's electric bills. So what I would encourage cities is to look at that bill and then look at over 10 years and see if there's ways without reducing this year's amount of support, because you can never take away today, people have urgent needs, but look at creative ways that you could over time use solar to help way more people, way more sustainably than just paying their bills. A lot of times people are like, well, where are we going to get the money for this? Where are we going to get the money for this? In fact, we're spending billions and billions of dollars paying people's bills. Let's pay for their solar. Let's not get hung up on like fancy performance contracts and financing and all that. Pay for it. You just have to upfront a couple years and then every year you'll have less people needing direct energy assistance. So get on a sustainable path with your infrastructure and start small and then grow it. Well, hey, Anya, thank you very much for joining us. This has been fantastic conversation. We really appreciate it and all the work you've been doing and continue to do. Thanks for having me. It was great talking to both of you. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, thank you, Anya. Okay, Larry, what'd you think? Well, no surprise here, but I love the founding story with being inspired by her son saying, hey, let's do solar, let's figure this out. And then I also really resonated with her point that when she said without two 12-year-olds pushing her, she would have quit after the third house, just showing that young people are can push and say, come on, keep going, and also just be that inspiration. Yeah. It's a real testament to, to starting small and having the endurance and, and persevering through some of the challenges and having that motivation in those kids. It's a growing uh, organization that is active in a number of states um, and is doing a lot to really drive solar and now storage. Yeah. Maybe not on the episode, but she had said they've done something like 250 plus bulk purchases now around the country. Yeah. It's a great story. Yeah. I really liked her point about how solar is this connector. It doesn't matter, you know, what your political background is. You can find something that you like about it. You can find that it allows you to not rely on your utilities electricity and have a bit more energy independence. Um, There's financial benefits. There's environmental benefits. There's just this wide spectrum of benefits that uh, is appealing to a broad range of people. Yeah. And in this environment where things are polarized on so many levels, it's nice to hear one that can unify and it can be a point where you can start working with your neighbors and maybe then use that to build on other things. Mm -hmm. One of the things that they are working to address through their programming is the gap in income, because I think that that is something that 
you know, regardless of your political background, solar has typically been something that's accessible to middle to upper middle income tend to be white populations and not accessible to lower income and communities of color. And so being very intentional about that, both from a program standpoint, and if you're doing a solar program within your city, being very intentional about that. And I appreciated, you know, that she pointed out that kind of funding versus financing, because it's one of those things that drives me absolutely crazy is that we bend over backwards trying to figure out financing for households with a low income. And it's like, just pay for it, just fund it. (laughs) that's the answer is to be able to come up with the money and there's money out there. We just have to, to use it a little bit more wisely. So I appreciate that they're finding ways to at least fund the bulk of the projects and allow people to be able to reap those benefits um, without a major burden to them. Yeah. It also, I think reinforces the need to have an equity lens on the work that you do because when you start out doing something like this, I imagine the, the first challenge they face is just how to get it done on a few roofs. And then when you say, all right, well, how do we get this done equitably? There's different issues you run into, the funding versus financing. She pointed out that in lower income homes, there may be more structural issues with the roof that you have to deal with. Thinking through that stuff intentionally is really important. Mm-hmm. Some of these federal programs she mentioned the energy assistance funding where we're basically paying utility bills. There's the weatherization program that I do think is allowing for some of these additional costs to be to be included where there might be asbestos or other environmental hazards in your home where there might be structural issues that get in the way of doing some of these things. And so I think that there may be some shifts in those federal programs, and there's certainly some bigger shifts that could happen that we could use this money to make homes more affordable and more more sustainable. One other point I want to raise is we talked with her at the end about solar and storage when you asked like where things are going. And you know, this comes up again after we did the microgrids episode where the simple combination of solar plus batteries feels really transformational to me. Yeah, I mean, it's great for a number of reasons. There may be some drawbacks in thinking about the the battery market and what that means for different extraction. But if we can figure that out, obviously storage and solar are a great combination because you can have power when the sun isn't shining, right? And you could have power when the grid goes down. There's all sorts of applications that make that such a strong combination. Right. Previously, we had thought about the grid as this centralized thing, and you had to build all this resilience into the central part of it. But increasingly, with the grid based on renewables, it's a different structure. And also, at the same time, we've got these weather-related disasters that are happening more frequently that are putting more stress on the centralized grid. So it feels to me like this is part of the way the grid has to evolve. Yep. And one thing I guess that's in the infrastructure funding is looking at the grid. So considering all those different options and and making sure that it's a consideration, you know, if you're putting solar on your rooftop, it doesn't make sense to also add a battery. The technology is going to be changing and evolving pretty rapidly, and it's a lot to keep up with, but I think that it's headed in a good direction. Well, what a cool episode initiated by 12-year-olds years ago. 12-year-olds, yeah. We're almost 30 now. (laughs) We hope you enjoyed this episode of City Climate Corner. If you like what you're hearing, make sure to subscribe and give us a review. 
If you're able, become a monthly supporter through Patreon. As always, you can find more information on this topic and resources from each episode's guests on our webpage, cityclimatecorner.com. If you have an idea for the show, send us an email at cityclimatecorner at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. City Climate Corner is produced by Abby Finnis and me, Larry Kraft, edited by me. Our production assistant is Maggie Morin. Music by King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.